Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Mark. If you could turn to Mark 12, 28 through 34. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no other, no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered him intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. He will bless us as we hear and obey it. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. As a college student, actually at the conclusion of my college career, I spent a summer in Israel on an archaeological archaeological dig, and at the conclusion of that time, I spent a few weeks hitchhiking around Europe before coming home. I remember one conversation I had with another American in front of the American Express office in Greece, Athens. After about 30 minutes of the commencement and ending of our friendship, unless I see him in glory, he stood up and hoisted his backpack on his shoulder. It was a gleaming, glistening day in Greece, and I saw his face framed against the blue sky, and he said with as a grin just as wide as Warren Beatty, he said, here I am, the American dream. Well, even though I enjoyed this new friend, it wasn't immediately apparent to me what he meant by that, so I said, uh, how's that? And he said, back on my pack, an open road ahead of me, and no strings to tie me down. The American dream. If America has given a story, a myth to the world, it's the story of the cowboy. And that particular development of it, where the cowboy comes from outside society with no strings, he comes into community, he rights wrongs, and he leaves, not tied down. We are a people forged from a document which brands deep in the center of our consciousness a quest for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As Americans, we are deeply trained to value and appreciate freedom and independence and liberty. Swiss theologian Karl Barth said that every Christian should go forward into life with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another, 
And by that, to explain the obvious, he of course means that our lives are to be informed and led and steeped in Scripture, but we are also to be students of the culture in which we live, where the gospel is to be carried, how it is to be met, where it is to meet culture, and at the same time, as any astute missiologist will tell us, it also means not only to know where culture is and where we can meet it, but how we must change it and how it must be transformed and what in it is resistant and antithetical to the gospel. One of my friends at Fuller Seminary, William Durness, Bill Durness, has written an amazing book overlooked by many, How Does America Hear the Gospel? And he goes through classic American themes like independence and freedom and the new land and the dream and then catalogs how in every case uninformed by the Bible, those Americanisms distort and dilute the gospel. They have to be reframed and redeemed and, and recast. So for the Christians who are aware of culture, we need to know where we can meet it and where it must be changed. We are in a series of sermons addressing objections to Christianity, and this week, we are looking at an objection which, although universal, is also distinctly American. We are looking at the objection that Christianity is a straitjacket, that Christianity is the enemy of authentic freedom. People object to Christianity because they think Christians are always trying to shove their morality down others' throats. So the question goes, what gives Christians, or really anybody, the right to tell others how to live their life? The French philosopher Diderot said, there will never be any true freedom until the last king is slaughtered on the entrails of the last priest. Now, of course, everyone has rules. And if you are in the series of home Bible studies, and home studies really, and I hope you are at these six weeks on these objections, you will see that the text cases on the video really put up very few uh, objections to that point. They realize that rules are necessary, that we all have rules. Indeed, we raise children with rules, and rules in a very deep sense, people understand, also inculcate freedom. The rub comes when we try to answer the question, who makes the rules? And what are the rules? Um, the real question then, as Bertrand Russell put it, is are rules subjective? The subjectivity of values, he wrote. The Romans had a saying, in matters of taste, there is no disputing. So, for example, my wife... <coughs> thinks mushrooms are a gift from beyond. I agree with her. I think they are a gift from Satan and grown in hell. In matters of taste, there's no disputing. Neither I nor Stephanie are right or wrong in that way. It's simply a matter of taste. Here's the question. Are morals and ethics that way? Several years ago, a movie came out that was the Gone with the Wind of martial arts films. Its name was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. If you want to see a mesmerizingly beautiful, fantastically fanciful, and movingly mythical Asian film, I recommend it. 
Now let me confess, several years ago I used this illustration in another sermon, but it fits here as well. So I'm going to use it again. My father, when he was going to tell one of his favorite stories, says, if you've already heard this, don't tell me because I want to hear it again myself. In Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, there is a privileged, aristocratic young woman named Jen. And she lives under the despotic imprint of her father. Her father has arranged a marriage for her, and diplomatically and familiarly and economically, uh, the marriage is necessary. But she rebels against it. And early in the film, she meets a woman from the warrior class, Shuleen. And Jen is fascinated by her. Early in the film, she says to Shuleen something like this. It must be exciting to be a warrior, to be totally free. I've read about people like you, roaming wild, beating up people who get in your way. And Shulene replies, Well, writers wouldn't sell many books if they told you how it actually was. But Chen says, But to be absolutely free, to live my own life, that would be happiness. And Shalene gets very stern, and she says uh, to Jen in her dangerous naivete, No, there are always rules. Fighters have to have rules, or they wouldn't last long. Honor, trust, integrity, discipline. Without rules, we wouldn't survive for long, but they are hard. Jen says, But... I wish I were like the heroes in the book, like you. Finally, uh, it turns out that Jen has secretly, the younger woman has secretly been a martial artist herself. And uh, so it turns out, as the film unpacks, that she is caught in her own dilemma, her own plot, of wanting a master that could bring out of her all that she could be. They would bring her to be her very best, and at the same time, a fear of a master who would truncate her freedom and capsulize uh, her life. So she wants a master, and she hates a master. And much of the film circulates around that tragedy, and everything that happens in her life is a consequence of that conflict of wanting and needing a master and rebelling against it. I think uh, we are asking this particular question of rules and freedom and responsibility in a particularly unique time. I don't think there has ever been a society and a time in which the issues about rules and law and conduct weren't somewhat in dispute. But what is different about our time is that there is no consensus. In other words, arguments before always happened in the context of a Confucian culture, or a Hindu culture, or a Catholic culture, or a Protestant culture. But we have a situation today which is arguably unique in history. We have no informing cultural consensus. There's no consensus that there is, even is, a transcendent moral code. Our culture today no longer provides us with any moral outlook. 
That's not, there, there's not even any agreement that there is a transcendent moral life or moral code to know. Consequently, we have more debates today about the nature of morality and the nature of the moral life than any society has ever had, and I predict it's going to continue that way. So, our text today, rather than being an archaic example of a religious practice with which few of us can relate, presents us instead with a case that speaks directly to this contemporary dilemma. A Pharisee comes asking Jesus about the rules he needs to follow. Jesus has just been talking with the Sadducees, who were the liberals of his day. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in supernaturalism of that sort. But this Pharisee knows that rules are important. As a matter of fact, rules are the way that we can make ourselves right with God. If we keep them properly, we can be blessed. And because they are so important, they've been counted in. There are 633, a crushing number. So after Jesus has just addressed the liberals, the Sadducees, a Pharisee comes to him and he says, I know, I know, I know. I know that the law is important, but it's crushing. Can you help me with it? Can you make it manageable? Can you find a way to make it practical? Help me, Jesus. Now, when Jesus addresses the question, and he does, he accepts it. He stuns the crowd into silence. Look at verse 34. It's the conclusion of the verses that were read. After that, namely after Jesus had answered, no one dared ask him any more questions. No one dared. To the crowd at that time, Jesus' answer was astounding. The people were left speechless. And so the question I want to put to the text is why? Perhaps it doesn't sound that radical to our ears. Eugene Peterson has said, sometimes some of us have handled the text so closely and so familiarly, familiarly we get to know it so well, we think, that we uh, rub its rugged edges smooth rather than let them cut us and hear it anew. Uh, what I think is going on here is a radical redefinition of the law and a new definition of the motivation for the law. Several years ago, I heard Earl Palmer speak over at First Presbyterian in Berkeley. He did a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments, and his governing principle behind all of them is that behind these negative commandments is a positive principle. All of them actually speak positively. You can't keep the commandments with a negative. You haven't kept the commandment not to commit adultery if you haven't laid down your life for your spouse. You haven't kept the commandment not to steal if you haven't lived a life that is generous and open and gracious and giving. You can't keep the commandment not to lie just by not committing perjury. Behind every commandment is a positive principle. So Jesus is saying, all the commandments of the law, 
are about love. They all lead to love. They are all a royal road to love. Love is what the law is always after. Love is what every law is about. But of course, Jesus is also saying, don't forget the rules. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is not making the conservative mistake is that salvation and happiness is found by keeping the laws. And he's not making the liberal mistake that I can make up my own laws. He's saying the laws are important, desperately important. The laws define what love looks like. And here it is. Only then can you understand the meaning of the law. Then, secondly, Jesus also redefines the motive for keeping the law. The Pharisees were trying to reduce the law into a manageable size, making it less crushing. But Jesus enlarges it. Jesus says the law is a training wheel for love. Love God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. The only reason you keep the law is because you already have a passionate love relationship with the living God. Reinhold Niebuhr, who was one of uh, my heroes during my seminary education, said that really there are two disparate but connecting motivations in keeping the law outside of grace. One is fear. If I don't keep the law, I'm going to be crushed. And the other motivation is pride. I can keep the law. And look at me. Jesus is painting here a picture of the way love and law work together. And what he is saying is that love is always placed first. That's why the response to what he said is a stunning response. He says, uh, you can't keep the law as conservatives want to out of fear. And you can't keep the law as liberals think you can out of pride and making them up as you go along. The response of the Pharisee to what Jesus says is interesting. Look at verse 33. And to love him with all one's heart, with all one's understanding, with all one's strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So I would paraphrase that by saying, as the Pharisee comes to Jesus looking for a shortcut, looking for a way to make the law manageable, looking for a way around it all, and he says, you've raised the ante. You've enlarged it. Not only is it larger than all the law, it's larger than all the sacrifices and offerings, I am lost. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. In saying that, I think Jesus is saying two things. He's saying, you are close and you are not there. So coming to Christ is a journey. I was taken along on the first step of the journey by Rex Shaver this morning. Never has sin seemed less attractive to me than this morning in our children's story. It is a rat trap. And the first part of the journey is to recognize that I'm lost. The first step is moving away from trying to solve my life out of fear or out of pride, out of inferiority or out of superiority. It is 
coming to an end of ourselves. It is to recognize that we are lost. Um, I had the privilege of being around while the Holy Spirit uh, led a, a young lady, a daughter of a senator, uh, to Christ. And the last step, the last step before she came to Christ was, you know, I couldn't become a Christian if it meant I had to believe this about that. And I said, well, being a Christian isn't about that. It was an ethical rule. It was a law that the particularity of it isn't important. But I, I couldn't believe that. And he said, that's, I, I, I said to her, that isn't what the issue is. The issue is making Jesus Lord. The issue is making him master. I do have an opinion about that, but as God is my witness, I try to have as few opinions about things on my own as I can. I might have some, but I try not to. As much as I can, I try to orient my life and look at my life and have the opinions of my life as I am led to have them by the Lord Jesus Christ. What you are committing yourself to is trusting Jesus Trusting that his understanding of life is wholesome for all people, not just you, but others. And listening to him and learning from him, it's making Jesus Lord. That's what you're committing yourself to. In uh, this particular situation, I think Jesus knew that he was speaking in the temple area. And he knew that in just a few short days... He would be making himself a sacrifice and himself an offering, a perfect one. He would be crying out from the darkest place on earth that, Father, I love you with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. His life was not just defined by law, but motivated by love. We, uh, as we come to the process of that grace need to come to that point, that place where we realize that we are worse off than we could possibly dream and that we could are more loved than we could possibly know. Being a Christian is as hard and as easy as loving the Lord Jesus Christ with all our heart and mind and soul and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. From that everything else follows. Father, we are thankful for your amazing grace and your unfailing love. We are thankful that in Jesus Christ you have called us to a new way and a new life with a new purpose. Father, we ask your forgiveness for our fearfulness and our pride. All the objections and obstacles that we put between us and your love. May we be wise enough and may we be daring enough to follow you all the days of our life, in this life and in the next, for it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.